Good evening and welcome, welcome and thrice welcome here to St. Paul's to each and every one of you. My name is Mark Oakley and it is my privilege to introduce our speakers this evening, which I will do in just a moment. But for those of you who've not been to one of our events here before, first, it's great to have you here. And second, just let me tell you in a moment how it works. In a moment, Nadia Boltzweber and Richard Coles will speak about finding God in all the wrong people and places, perhaps even here. They'll each speak for about 20 minutes and then we will have plenty of time for your questions. If you have a question, we ask you to write it on the back of your program and hold it up to be collected. It will look, we do know, as if you want to be excused, but please be bold and you can hold up your question at any time during the evening until around 7.40. Please try and keep them brief and legible. We're also taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag AccidentalSaints. If you'd like to send us your question through your mobile, just type in the question and include hashtag AccidentalSaints and we'll find it. And then your questions will be sent up to me here at the laptop and I will put as many of them as I can to Nadia and Richard. We will end at eight o'clock and there's a bookstall where you can buy Nadia and Richard's uh, books. Nadia has uh, very kindly agreed to sign her books afterwards. Richard wanted to, but he has to make a quick exit, I'm afraid, at the end of the evening. We'd be very grateful if you wouldn't film the speakers, but there will be a film of the evening up on the Cathedral website very soon. And so now it gives me real pleasure to introduce to you our speakers. Nadia Boltz-Weber is the founding pastor of the House of All Saints and All Sinners in Denver, Colorado. She is a former stand-up comic, a leading voice in the emerging church movement in America, and a New York Times best-selling author, as well as being in high demand as a speaker all over the world. Her book, Cranky Beautiful Faith, tells the story of her messy, real faith in her messy, real life and her unlikely journey to being uh, an ordained Lutheran pastor. If you haven't read it, really, buy it this evening and clear your diary. Her equally wonderful book is Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People, and that's what we're talking about this evening. The wrong people include atheists, drag queens, a bishop in prison, and Republicans. The annoying, the needy, and the people she profoundly disagrees with. If you feel you may be a wrong person, or just know all the wrong people, feel especially welcome here this evening. Which brings me to Richard Coles. If ever two people... If ever two people went the long way round to ordain ministry, they're sitting here this evening. Richard, as many of you know, is the only priest in the Church of England to have had a number one hit single, <laughs> part of the communards in the 1980s. 
his journey to being the contented country vicar he is today, led via atheism, fame and riches, success and excess, politics, sex and drugs. All marvellous preparation for life in the Church of England. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. The whole story is in his fathomless riches or how I went from pop to pulpit. And the second part of his memoir, Bringing in the Sheaves, Wheat and Chaff from My Years as a Parish Priest, is published next month. Less racy, he says. I'll believe it, of course, when I see it. He's also the presenter of the very popular Saturday morning show on Radio 4, a regular on various TV shows, and like Nadia, a great favourite at Greenbelt. And by the way, if you're here tonight from Greenbelt, welcome to our own big top. (laughs) Often we seem to hear from the centre of the church, and it can all seem a bit institutional the bland leading the bland sort of thing, and a long way from Nazareth. Both Nadia and Richard, I think, open the window on what the real life of faith looks like for many of us. It's a lot more recognizable and a lot more attractive, more personal, a bit messier, certainly more joyful, and rooted in relationships rather than churchy chess games. They've both taught me through their writing and their friendship that faith might actually break your heart, but at the same time, might just break it open. I really am delighted they're both here tonight. Would you please join me in welcoming them? Thank you. Uh, hi, how are you guys? Pretty good? Yeah. <clears throat> I've been doing a lot of speaking in the UK, and it's so weird because at every single place I've spoken, except for this one, they spent about 15 minutes at the beginning telling people where all the fire exits were. <laughs> it's like a national obsession with you people. There must be a glut of uh, pyromania in England or something. Um, It's nice to be back at St. Paul's. I was here two years ago, and um, the first thing I said when I stood up was, um, does anyone else feel like it's slightly inappropriate I'm being allowed to speak here? Or just me? For a long time, it felt like people wanted their clergy to be examples for them, to be examples of perfect piety or holy living, of being a good Christian. But my congregation is not like that. If I'm an example of anything, it's an example of what it looks like to be desperately in need of God's grace. And that's the kind of leadership that my congregation wants from me. They actually have been known to say that they're glad that they have a preacher who's so clearly 
preaching to herself and just letting them overhear it. I'm known for um, admitting rather inelegant things about myself in sermons and in talks and in books. But I try to preach from my scars and not my wounds, if at all possible. And the reason that I'm somewhat fearless about just admitting horrible things about myself is that I have what's called as a Lutheran. Now, I know you guys don't have any of those there, so literally I could say anything about what it means to be Lutheran, and you'd be like, oh, fascinating. (laughs) But as a Lutheran, I have what's called a low anthropology, which means I have a low opinion of human beings. I'm not very idealistic about humans, um, mostly because I'm familiar with the darker contours of my own heart, and I don't think maybe I'm that different than everyone else. And what it allows for when you have a low anthropology is it allows for a high view of God. It allows for a high view of what God can do in your life. When I was writing my most recent book, Accidental Saints, which um, actually titled Accidental Saints because my publisher wouldn't let me call it Purpose Driven Sinners. Not sure why, but um, someone asked me what my new book was about when I was writing it, and I said, oh, it's just another collection of my personal humiliations for the general public's enrichment. I said to a good friend of mine, you know, I want to write a book at some point in which I come off looking good in like one chapter, not the whole book, you know, I don't want to be an asshole, but like just one (laughs) chapter, and they said, well you have so little source material to draw from. (laughs) Um, So as someone who stumbles through faith and life in general and who has never managed to feel spiritual for any extended period of time, which is not just a joke, I literally put up a tweet recently that admitted I get what can only be described as road rage when I'm stuck behind someone walking slowly in a prayer labyrinth. (laughs) I'm like, look, no one's impressed by how into this you are. Speed up, man. That's literally how hopeless I am. So as a person like that, I guess, I only really feel connected to other people who are also like that. I mean, it feels good to be inspired by other people, to admire their accomplishments and to be dazzled by their virtues. And there's nothing wrong with that, but what I really want is to not feel so alone. And so while I might feel inspired by someone who's good, I only feel less alone when someone shares their failures with me, the things they struggle with, the parts of themselves that are more jagged than smooth. So when we talk about the saints, it makes me nervous when we assume saints are gleaming examples of human perfection because I guess I believe there's only really one kind of human, the kind that's simultaneously sinner and saint, 100% of both, all the time. No one manages to be like 80-20. So while I love learning about the lives of the saints, especially the really weird ones, When it comes down to it, 
I feel more inspired by also knowing their failures. Otherwise, hagiography can just become one more occasion to feel convicted by the law rather than freed by the gospel. When information about Mother Teresa came out that she struggled with faith and was sometimes cranky with others and was like human, some people were like really disappointed, but I was like really thrilled. Learning about her jagged parts gave me hope in God's mercy rather than despair in my humanness. Anyway, it's been my experience that what makes us the saints of God is not our ability to be saintly, but God's ability to work through sinners. All the saints I've known have been accidental ones. People who stumble into redemption like they were looking for something else at the time. Those with a wee bit of a drinking problem who manage to get sober and help other drunks do the same. People who are as kind as they are hostile. What we celebrate in the saints isn't their purity or their perfection or their piety. What we celebrate in the saints is God's ability to get beautiful, redemptive stuff done through, of all things, human beings, all of whom are flawed. All of whom are flawed. I've always suspected so much of religion and spirituality, be it evangelical purity culture or new age yoga culture, that so much of what is offered is a way to sand down the edges of ourselves. Like, it's all a program for making ourselves into something less janky and more pure. As if with enough yoga or Bible study or prayer labyrinths or organic foods, we can spiritually improve ourselves into purity of heart and mind. And if you find that doesn't work for you, like if you find that all the New Age meditation or all that listening only to Christian radio doesn't do the trick, and you still experience road rage and feelings of pride and a tiny bit of hatred toward your boss, if your copy of The Secret and The Purpose Driven Life is dog-eared and worn from multiple readings, and yet you still binge watch too much Netflix and can't seem to manifest everything in your life, these books imply you should be able to, well then, like maybe you have two options. One, just pretend, fake it, seriously. Just, you could do it. I mean, it's not that hard. You just like, um, you just talk with like a passive aggressive half whisper. <laughs> and just maintain really good posture and pretend to be really spiritual. Or like you could talk endlessly about how much you're walking in victory with the Lord, whatever the hell that means. Fake it, man. You'll feel alone, but you will not be alone. A lot of people fake that shit. Or option two, you could just, you could keep practicing yoga or keep like studying the Bible and just be surprised by the little ways these things creep into you, changing you, bringing life out of death and light into the darkness. And at the same time, no, you can still admit you're hopeless. You can still tell the truth about yourself fearlessly, be honest. Tell about your failings and about your spirituality. And if you do, you will not be alone. You will not be alone. There's so many of us out there 
who know that while so much spirituality is nothing less than an attempt to smooth out our rough edges, it just so happens that the jagged edges of our humanity are what actually connect us to God and to each other. Those wounds and failures and misconceptions and mistakes create enough texture on us that God and our fellow humans have something to grab onto. So even though I'm someone who's gone through most of her life trying to convince people that she's strong as hell, who's tried to hide her vulnerabilities, somehow the thing I'm known for is laying those things bare, but it's not easy, it's actually never easy. But it's so totally worth it. Because I don't think I'm alone. I just think so many of us are tormented by the distance between our ideal self and our actual self. I know I am. It's as though there's this other version of Nadia in my head, one that has had all her defects of character removed. She's tidy and organized and selfless, and she can lift heavier weight than I can. She never gets angry in traffic. She needs fewer hours of sleep, and she can recite whole poems. She's basically nothing like me, and for some reason I think that if I commit to the right spiritual practices, I can be more her and less me. It's this burden we can carry of always knowing the difference between our ideal self and our actual self. The difference between our ideal income and our actual income. The difference between our ideal weight and our actual weight. The difference between our ideal hobbies and our actual hobbies. <laughs> it's like an emotional and spiritual Pinterest board always mocking us. <laughs> and we come by this little pathology, honestly. Our culture colludes in this fantasy of self-perfection, self of achieving sainthood. <laughs> but you know what? No one has ever become their ideal self. It's a moving target. It's like Sisyphus's rock. It's a mirage of water on a desert road we expend all our energy trying to get to and it does nothing but create more thirst. The bottom line is that the reason to be honest about ourselves and our failings and our wounds and to just tell the truth about our actual selves is that your ideal self does not exist. The self that God has a relationship to is your actual self. God isn't waiting for you to become thinner or more spiritual or a better yogi to love you. And I think the more distracted we become by our projects of self-improvement, trying to achieve sainthood, the less we really experience the love of God because we're too busy trying to earn what was already given to us freely. So here's the deal. Your ideal self is not real. You are. You in all your inconsistencies and beauty. You in your sinner and saintness. You, the saint of God, you beloved. 
God made a decision a very long time ago that you're loved and you're holy already. And there's nothing you can do or not do to change that because it just is. And isn't this perhaps a lovely basis on which to have compassion for ourselves? That the us that God loves is the actual broken, inconsistent self. So we can speak fearlessly, fearlessly about the truth about ourselves. And maybe a life of compassion means simply learning to love what God already loves. And doesn't that include ourselves? Thank you. Thank you. I've covered my tattoos, ladies and gentlemen. You'll be glad to hear. They're in places where you wouldn't want to see them, believe me. So interesting listening to what you were saying, Nadia, particularly, I think, because as someone who wears a dog collar as a matter of course, as indeed you do, on duty, I'm so conscious not only of the uh, relentless habit of others to project upon us certain assumptions about our expertise in precisely reconciling the ideal and the actual life, um, a, a process fraught with pitfalls, but much more insidious is, in fact, the way we do that to ourselves, mm -hmm. the way when we kind of dress in our dog collars, the way when we go about our parishes doing our, uh, our priestly things, how dangerous it is that we too lapse into this notion that uh, we do that from a position of, of expertise in matters in which there is no expertise. I'm very cheered always by the, the statement of Charles Peggy that the sinner stands at the heart of Christianity. No one is more competent in the matter of Christianity than the sinner, no one except the saint. My own predilections for believing my own propaganda are notorious, perhaps. <laughs> but one of the realities of parochial ministry is that you simply can't sustain that for long. And for me, it came early on in my ordained career when I was called out to a deathbed of a parishioner um, a man who I love very much, uh, who is a great and faithful Christian, um, a salty character with a particularly grainy view of life, but deeply, deeply faithful. He was dying of uh, prostate cancer, and he was on a morphine driver in the nursing home where he spent the last days of his life on this earth. And so off I dutifully went. Rather a traditionalist, he was very fond of the Book of Common Prayer. So I took that with me, went into his room, where he was receiving a regular dose of morphine to deal with the pain that was evident. And he was a little bit in and out of consciousness. So I opened my Book of Common Prayer and I turned to the Psalter and I read to him soothing psalms in the Coverdale version, thinking, knowing that that would be something that he would like to hear. I got through quite a few of them. He stirred occasionally. So I thought I would add, as an interpolation, my own comfortable words, if I can put it that way, to him. He stirred again. I carried on. Eventually, he sort of came to a, a version of consciousness and kind of indicated to me to come nearer. So I approached his bed. He had an oxygen mask on, which he removed, and I bent down and he whispered. I couldn't at first hear him. So I knelt uh, next to him, put my ear to his mouth, and he said, shut up, you stupid twat. <laughs> 
They were his last words. <laughs> it was a lesson well learned that uh, there are certain realities into which we blunder, even equipped with all uh, the expertise that we bring with us to these tasks, even after three years of theology degree, two years of postgraduate studies, two years at the Kafka stroke Hogwarts finishing school of theological college. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, there's realities we bump into, and those realities are always jagged, realities which always remind us of in, that in God's dispensation, uh, such things count for nothing. We discover ourselves, we rediscover ourselves constantly uh, as not the person we thought we were. And that is, of course, our great hope and our salvation. I remembered again going to, when I arrived at Theolo I had an unusual uh, induction into the life of the Church of England, having been in a pop band in the 80s, and then having worked in the BBC for 10 years, which is as near to ordination in the Church of England as you can get without ordination in the Church of England. And I remember going for my selection conference. Those of you who know the clergy of the Church of England may be surprised to hear that there's any selection process at all. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, there is. And so I kind of left behind me my career in broadcasting, my former career in pop music, my comfortable life, and turned up for a three-day conference in which I was sort of pressed and poked and prodded by various people to see if I was suitable for this, um, this fate. And uh, it culminated with an interview with the senior selector who was the Archdeacon of Lindisfarne. Just that we have an Archdeacon of Lindisfarne is reason enough to get ordained. <laughs> I sat in front of him, he looked at me, and he had a folder in front of him, and he said, I've looked at your file, and I want to know this. Why does somebody like you want to get mixed up with a broken-down, failing institution that's lost any sense of where it's going and doesn't know its future? I said, I'm thinking of leaving the BBC. <laughs> but it was a note of reality. I mean, so often I think in our church discourse, we generate a sort of breathless excitement about what we do, this sense of uh, you know, the extraordinary adventure of vocation which we're about. And that's indeed true, but it is never what we think it will be because it's about reality. It's not about those fantasies that we all too readily import it. I got to theological college, I can remember uh, in, after about three weeks going to see my spiritual director and him saying, how are you getting on? And me saying, awful. Because I went to train in an Anglican monastic foundation in Yorkshire, thinking that within those hallowed halls I would discover depths, wells of my own serenity in which the uh, ineffable love of God would bathe me in its golden rays and, <laughs> and all would be well. It didn't quite work out that way. Fantasy, of course, to think that it is in seclusion. It's through going to those misty, uh, marginal places that we will truly encounter the risen Lord and discover who we really are. I'm absolutely fed up of going into church bookshops or cathedral books, not this one, of course, obviously, and seeing on the racks all those greeting cards filmed a, a, um, of a soft, focused photograph of a misty stream tinkling down a hillside. <laughs> That's not really where I encounter God. I encounter God in the reality of places. So I remember going along to see my spiritual director, and he said, how are you getting on? And I said, not very well. And he said, what's the problem? And I said, well, these people. And he said, what do you mean, these people? And I said, well, they're not, they're not really doing it properly. They're not here for the right reason, and they're not doing it in the right way. They're venal. They're not focused. They're not committed. And he said, what else? And I thought about it, and I said, I'm not as nice as I thought I was. 
And he said, that's good. <laughs> and so it was the beginning of wisdom, isn't it? It seems to me that so often in our Christian lives, the moment when it gets interesting in relation to us is the moment when absolutely we reach those near horizons of our own competence, our sense of our own self-worth and self-importance, those stratagems for self-promotion, which we all deploy, run into them, you'll run into them soon enough. And that's where it gets interesting when you encounter the reality of other people. I loved your book, Nadia, about unexpected saints and thought about the unexpected saints who I'd met and who'd formed me. Some of them not in the least bit suitable at all, I'm afraid. The irony for me as someone who uh, came out as gay when I was 16 in 1978 and then uh, spent a lot of time involved in activism in the gay movement. Uh, people might think that's kind of an odd preparation for ministry in a church which finds so much of that very difficult and intractable and embarrassing and awkward. But it is nonetheless true that I think the basic rudiments of living in community I learnt in the gay community and it was those that really took me forward to a place where I began to think how that would inhabit a wider context than the one I'd lived in. One of the most influential people in that was a chap called Mark Ashton. I don't know if anyone saw the film Pride, which came out a couple of years ago, which was about an unusual collision uh, of cultures in the 1980s, 1984, the miners' strike. And uh, I was in London then. London, was, of course, was a very divided place at that time. Uh, Margaret Thatcher... Uh, her government formed in 1979 uh, in the Houses of Parliament. Across the Thames on the other side, County Hall, where Ken Livingstone presided over a very different culture indeed. And it was, London really sort of felt like a battlefield. And in that, people like me who'd run away from uh, the provinces, Kettering in my case, arriving in London in 1980, battle was joined. Notions of sexual identity, notions of gender, uh, the politics of feminism, the politics of class, a very heady, febrile time it was, uh, and all those things joined together. And to be a combatant in that, well, bliss was it in that dawn to be alive. And so we formed a support group called Lesbians and Gays Support the Miners. I don't think lesbians and gays had ever supported minors before in any organised way. And so there was these extraordinary meetings where we would get in our minibus and drive down to the Delice Valley in South Wales and go to the, the, the miners' social club and they'd be confronted by a working class community, in some ways very traditional, who looked at us and we looked at them. And after a while, fortunately, an extraordinary friendship happened. Largely brokered, I think, through the tireless and courageous and holy efforts of Mark Ashton, who was not a Christian, although he'd grown up in a fiercely contested Christian world in sectarian Northern Ireland in the 1970s. Uh, someone who was deeply engaged in politics. He was General Secretary of the Young Communist League before that was embarrassing. And someone who had this extraordinary, I think it was an extraordinary, he, what is a saint? A saint is someone, it seems to me, who anticipates persuasively the life of heaven before you get there. Not always a consistent thing, not always easy to see, very often unobserved it seems to me. But Mark, in spite of all his commitments and in spite of all his, um, his ideological convictions, was someone who just managed to somehow, with him you sensed that there was a kind of possibility beyond the narrow political possibilities in which we then lived, of achieving change without that costing any diminution of your sense of the dignity of the other. There's an extraordinary capacity for empathy, I think, which was the most striking thing about him. And to be part of his world 
which was kind of, I mean, not only, he was, not only was he general secretary of the Young Communist League, but he was also a barman at the Conservative and Unionist Club in Argyle Square in King's Cross. <laughs> so there was a certain kind of breadth to his range. But he was somebody who just made light come on in places that had normally been in shadow and make sort of possibilities unfurl, unfold that you hadn't seen before. Mark, uh, not, very, not very long, <laughs> I just remember an anecdote. Mark uh, made me go to, do you remember the, when Rupert Murdoch closed the, prints, uh, the printers in Fleet Street and moved it to Wapping and there was a huge dispute with the, with the um, NGA, the National Graphical Union, I think it was. And Mark made me go down there to stand on the picket line to protest at this event. So we stood on one side saying that inevitable refrain, the workers united will never be defeated which usually is a prelude to a massive defeat for organised labour, but there you go. (laughs) But there we were going, the workers united will never be defeated. Awkwardly for me, among the ranks of the police massed opposite with their riot shields was my older brother Andrew. (laughs) And so in the middle of this thing, we were going, the workers united will never be defeated. The police were beating back on their shields, and all of a sudden he looked over his shield and he said, are you going home for mum's birthday? (laughs) (laughs) I've never been more embarrassed in all my life. (laughs) But even in that divided world, even across those battle lines, there was a sense that it was a kind of transcendent way of being together uh, that offered possibilities, possibilities of transformation, possibilities of new life. Those are, I mean, that's one of the reasons I think why I try to do what I do now. my clerical career began in, in Lincolnshire at Boston Stump, where I was ordained deacon, served my title as, uh, as curate. And that was a fascinating place, wonderful medieval church surrounded by beautiful 18th century buildings in a sort of English town out of central casting. But behind those facades were lives, life were being, lives were being lived that were as tough as any I've come across anywhere. Poverty, deprivation, marginalization, heroin in particular, and its destructive effects on a community uh, really sort of um, defined what we did there. I learned an awful lot about what it was like to be somebody who woke up in the morning, not as I wake up in the morning, with the expectation that the day will be part of the continuing story of improvement, of betterment, that life gets better, a sense that you can invest resources, time, commitment, whatever it is now, and that will bring forth the fruit in the future to your benefit and the benefit of humankind. Most of the people I was dealing with in those rough estate housing in in Boston didn't. They woke up in the morning just trying to get through the day, thinking about the basic elements of survival. Very useful lesson for a clergyman to learn. And I remember once being called out to a funeral visit, and I went to the meanest street in town, and one of the meanest houses, a council house behind a very untidy garden, where one of the windows had been boarded up, and the door was semi-kicked in. And there I found the son of the deceased, who was a man with learning difficulties. I sat in the house Uh, It was a house that was thickly yellow with nicotine. It was a house in which your feet stuck to the floor as you moved through it. Um, It seemed like a documentary about poverty. I was slightly uncomfortable and awkward. He was uncomfortable and awkward too. He told me very little about his mother. I did the basic necessities I had to do, made my excuses and left. 
turned up at the crematorium a week later or so to take the funeral. And there was a huge crowd, I assumed, for a different funeral. But no, it was actually for the funeral of his mother, the funeral of a woman about whom he'd been able to say nothing at all, and for whom I did the most uh, cursory eulogy imaginable. But actually, it turned out that she'd been a remarkable woman, and the crowd that was there were there for her. And they were the children, abandoned, neglected, poorly looked after, of that estate who she had taken in, in various stages of distress and collapse and chaos in their lives. Some of them who had uh, been as perhaps as wild as children could imaginably be. Nonetheless, her door was open, they would come to her, and without sentimentality, without a view to uh, the opinion of the crowd, she'd simply done just the basic discipline of loving someone and of caring for someone, and had given them a sense of a structure, a sense of their place in the world that took them to greater places. One of them I remember, the one I remember most of all, was a guy, and he st stood out. He was a mixed-race guy, and he was wearing the uniform of a British Army officer. And I spoke to him, and he'd been a kid who'd grown up without any real parenting on that estate, who'd been taken in by her. His life had turned around and had ended up becoming uh, commissioned in the British Army. Provided you think that's success, it's up to you. Um, and I remember talking to him, and I said, what was the difference that she made in your life? And he said, it was simply that she just made me aware that a future was possible. A future was possible. Somebody who just opened people's eyes to a future that they hadn't thought of before. Um, a possibility of light coming into a darkness that was so dark they didn't even know it was darkness. They didn't even know there was a perspective at the end of it. Remarkable woman. Much to my shame. I, I used to do two... Um, eulogies for people in those days when no one would tell me anything about them. One went, Dot loved the crossword. And in a very real sense, there's one word, isn't it, that makes sense of the whole pattern, and that word is Jesus. <laughs> Sorry about that. And the other one was, Violet loved to knit. And often in a pattern, there's one thread that holds the rest of that pattern together. <laughs> I learned not to preach sermons like that anymore. Better to say nothing than to say something like that. But also some of the saints who have affected me have been saints. I think one of the reasons why I do what I do now or try to do what I do now is because other people made it look possible. Simply that. Someone was doing serious, committed, church, Christian things without too great a sacrifice to their integrity or their honesty. One of them was a prebendary of this cathedral, John Gaskell, who I'm sure you'll remember very well, Mark. I'm sure many of you remember him. who was my first vicar when I came stumbling into a church in total distress and disarray at the age of 29, St. Albans, Hoban. John was the vicar there and a remarkable man. John played a huge part in getting me, in landing me, I think, from the sort of chaotic final approach I made to faith. And for that, I'm uh, eternally grateful. Years later, um, Fern Britton decided to make a documentary about me for the BBC. And one of the things she needed to do for that long interview with me was talk to people who would tell her how marvellous I am. That took some finding, it has to be said. <laughs> but particularly around that period in my life, she said, I want to talk to somebody who was there uh, when you made this conversion, when you went from your life and entered into that church and, and events took a decisive turn. And I said, well, John Gaskell's the person to talk to. He said, well, would you call him, please, and ask him? So I did. So I phoned John Gaskell and said, um, oh, hello, Father. Hello, Father, how nice to hear from you. That was him, not me. And I said, they're making a documentary about me for the BBC, and they need someone who was around at the time of my conversion to talk about uh, that part of my life, that critical part of my life. And I couldn't think of anyone better than you. 
would you, would you mind doing that? And he said, oh, Father, I would so love to help you. There's just one tiny problem. And I said, what's that? He said, I don't remember a thing about you. <laughs> that seems to me a kind of priestly exercise of saintly virtues in a way, reminding us again of who we are and where the limits of our marvelousness lie. It's not really about us, is it? When we do our jobs properly, it seems to be it's about vacating space. It's we must decrease that he may increase, not as a kind of pious refrain, but simply understanding that when we do our jobs best, it's through the honest offering of who we are in all our brokenness, in all our jaggedness. And that's, I often think of the story of the monster of Glam's, Glam's Castle, you'll know where I think the Queen Mother was born, notoriously has an, a chamber within where the monster of Glam, some misshapen, monstrous, uh, faulty product, if you like, of that exalted line, a creature kept in a room which is uh, locked away. And whenever the next successor uh, to Glam's uh, inherits, then they're told the secret of the monster of Glam's. Apparently once they hung sheets in all the windows of that castle to see if there was such a room, and there was one uh, window that was unhung, and in that it's thought the monster resided. And it's a very powerful image. You find it in other folkloric stories too, but it seems to me so often... Uh, that's kind of us too. And I love that bit where Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount about when we go to pray, about going to the private place and praying in secret there to the Father. And I sometimes think that what we need to do is to open within ourselves the door to the locked chamber, that part of ourselves, the most, that awkward, embarrassing, difficult, shaming part of ourselves that we keep so carefully away from public view, to open that door and discover that there's no monster in there at all. There's simply another window, and through that window to let the light come. I've gone on too long, haven't I? Thank you very much. Turn your microphone a bit nearer to your Uh, thank you, Nadia uh, and Richard. And please, now, uh, your opportunity to uh, write down your questions on your programmes and hold them up, or indeed to start uh, uh, getting active on hashtag Accidental Saints and putting your uh, questions there. A lot of questions have already come up. Uh, let me just start off. The sort of shows that you do, do you remember Call My Bluff? I do. This was a rather eccentric uh, uh, programme on BBC Two. And there used to be a wonderful man on it called Frank Muir. And he once said, the definition of a saint is dead sinner dug up and edited. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder, as we, as we set about this conversation about saints, what's your definition? What's your definition? I'll, I'll come to you in a moment, Richard. But how do you define this word, saint? I don't think I've ever really tried to define it. I mean, in a way, um, like when we celebrate all saints, it's anyone who's passed on, really. It's um, anyone who has lived this baptismal life and passed on. So um, I, don't, I don't see many qualifications for that title in my, in my view. Um, one of the reasons I started thinking about this to begin with is I started House for All Sinners and Saints by myself. I just started a church from scratch. I don't suggest it. And um, 
and it was really hard, and I, I didn't have any heroes. I, I, I knew two other women who had ever started a church by themselves, and I was desperate for heroes. Um, and I was walking down this street in Denver and uh, saw this old weird church that uh, in the courtyard, it had a, a memorial to its founder, uh, Alma White. And uh, I was like, Alma, that's like a girl's name. You know, is that a, was there a woman who started a church in the early 1900s in Denver? So I was uh, very excited thinking I had this great hero and uh, looked up her uh, Wikipedia entry and was just very excited because it said things, you know, Alma White was the first, uh, was a female clergy person, the first bishop of a, of a church in America. And, you know, she was around in the early 1900s. She was the founder of a church. She, she was known for her feminism. I'm like, oh, this is great. And, uh, and then uh, the, the article went on to say, uh, and her anti-Semitism and hostility to immigrants. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I called Sarah Miles, who was uh, one of my dearest friends, and she was with me two years ago doing this event. I called Sarah and I said, honey, I, I, I almost had a hero, but it ends up she's a lousy racist. <laughs> and, um, and Sarah's response, because this was in uh, the fall, this was at the end of October. She said, honey, give me her name. I'll add her to the litany of saints with all the other broken people of God. Mm. And uh, that made me uncomfortable, you know, to have Alma White be considered a saint. But um, we're all simultaneously sinner and saint. You know, I like to be able to know the difference between a saint and a racist, you know. But to think that anybody, any human has gone through this life without being a sinner is to absolutely fool ourselves. And maybe God got something good done through somebody like Alma White, even though she was a lousy racist. I, I have to believe God's powerful enough to do that. Like, I need to believe that God is powerful enough to do that, more than I need to believe in the purity of human beings to do that. Mm -hmm. So God sort of opens the refrigerator and uses what's there. Yeah, I mean, like, God uses the whole buffalo, you know. <laughs> Is that an image that you use in Northamptonshire? Uses the whole constantly. <laughs> what, I what's, think it, what's a saint? Well, I think I, mean, I have had to not define this exactly, but think about it because I wrote a couple of books about saints, the more kind of esoteric and dramatic saints from from the history of the church. Some of whom were extremely broken indeed, but I thought they're people in whom something comes into focus which suggests the life of heaven that there's something about them that they're living already uh, in a reality which lies beyond this one. Um, but again, not as necessary as a steady beam, as something which kind of flutters and flakes, as indeed we do. So I think that's, that's something of it. But I do think it involves a certain... I think also it's, it's, it's challenging. Um, I'm thinking of someone in particular in a parish of mine who, when I first went there, I found extremely awkward and extremely difficult. His views were wildly to the right, uh, and certainly excessively to the right of mine. His attitude towards certain things was very different. He was unreconstructed. He knew none of the kind of niceties of polite discourse around issues to do with the kind of animating issues of my life. Um, feminism. His name Donald Trump? Or <laughs> <laughs> feminism, sexual politics, that uh, kind of thing. And at first it was a difficult relationship. No, actually it was always a difficult relationship. But... There was something about him that was extraordinarily impressive. He had integrity, he had honesty, he had a commitment to the community 
which put the rest of us in a way to shame, I think. And it was related to his doggedness about and persistence in views which I found sort of unpardonable. But the more I got to know him, the more I realised that there was something about this chap that was irreducibly good right. and powerful right. and made me think about myself and made me really think about my own assumptions about things. And this idea, notorious for those of us on the left, that somehow with that comes virtue. Right. And of course, virtue is a more elusive beast than mm -hmm. that and doesn't line up with our political mm. commitments. Mm -hmm. There was something about him that was... And I, and I thought, someone came to see me once and said, John's a bastard. And I said, we must cherish our bastards. Amen. Amen. Yes, yeah. I agree. Um, let's get Could going. I have a t-shirt that says, we mu it was a picture of the church, <laughs> we must cherish our bastards. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we'll be selling them downstairs. <laughs> You should do. <laughs> There's so many to choose from. <laughs> um, right, let's get going. Uh, the two questions that are very similar, so let me read both of them. A question from a newly ordained Rev, it says. Great to hear you talking about the ideal self and not trying to be perfect. Where do you draw the line between accepting yourself, warts and all, and trying to be more like Jesus? Uh, and there was another question. Yes. Agree we should accept current self, but current self is not static. We should still aim to be more Christ-like, question mark? Who wants to start? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I, I was having a bit of a row with someone a while ago about that who did say to me, uh, as a challenge to my own behavior, a naked pursuit of self-interest, <laughs> what would Jesus do? And the only answer I could think of was not what we think. Hmm. In other words, the idea that we can somehow be effective executors of our own goodness and saintliness yes. seems to me to lack yes. something fundamental. Just so much of that is about vacating space for right. Jesus to be Jesus That's in, right. if I can right. put it that way. That's right. um, and so I think, absolutely right, we should always seek to be Christ-like. But the idea that somehow you can achieve that as an accomplishment like you would a first aid certificate or a driving test. Exactly. Well, so often it is presented as that, isn't it? If you <laughs> totally. kind of do everything in the book, right. then you'll, well, I don't mean, you know what I mean, then you'll be okay. So often it's not that, isn't it? So often it's about relinquishing ourselves, totally. our best efforts, in order to allow something that's beyond ourselves, greater than ourselves, to move in. To interrupt. Yeah. I agree, absolutely. That was beautiful. I mean, I, um, yeah, it's a great idea. I love that idea of, oh, just striving to be like Jesus. But you know what? Never in my li life have I done a self-assessment and thought, yeah, I definitely am more like Jesus now. You know? <laughs> Not once. Because if you have that thought... You're not being like Jesus. I mean, it's like a huge trap, you know? And uh, that, that taking on the, pro the great project of the self, in a way, to me, uh, in, in a sense, it almost is to replace God, right? Because there's a sense that, you know, I was raised in this really conservative evangelical church where the message was to be in right relationship to God was to be so good, so much like Jesus, you never had to bother him. 
You know, you never had to ask for forgiveness. You never had to draw on the great mercy of God. So really, to be a really good Christian and to be in right relationship with God means to not be in relationship with God, in a sense. Well, it would mess it up, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. But what about the sense of development, transformation? Well, I think we grow in wisdom. I'll say that. I don't, I don't buy the idea of progressive sanctification. As a Lutheran, I reject it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe we do have the capacity to grow in wisdom um, through our experiences, through the things we've gotten wrong, through the input of other people, through scripture, through all of those things. I think we develop wisdom. But I do not think that we sanctify ourselves because that has already been accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So um, we're constantly trying to sort of dig through God's garbage and pull out things that God's already managed to deal with. But what about conversion of life? Well, I think you've got to feel the burn, as Jane Fonda once put it. Oh, yes. I think what Jane Fonda was referring to, that an exercise regime, it's only when it kind of hurts you, when the lactic acid builds up in your muscles and stings you, that you're kind of doing it right. I, do, I know in my own case that much as I would like uh, to rise on the wings of faith in an angelic ascendance, uh, that's not really how it works. For me, it's about discipline, and it's about adhering to the kind of basic disciplines of prayer and of reminding myself that it's not a walk in the park and it's not your party. A lot of it is simply about sticking with it, sticking with the program, coming up alongside people in all their you know, brokenness as your brother, all their jaggedness as your jaggedness, mm-hmm. and kind of carrying on. I think that's important. Finding some sort of resilience the reserves necessary to continue to walk the way. And we know where the way leads because we follow in the steps of Jesus Christ. That seems to me to be part of the deal. And I, I mean, I've always experienced God as being really disruptive and actually kind of throwing me on my ass more than some sort of comfortable, fluffy cloud feeling. Um, I was doing a Q&A at a seminary, this young sem- earnest seminary, and said, Pastor Nadia, what do you do to get closer to God? And like before I knew I was saying it, I was like, what? Nothing. Why would I do that? Like, feels like a horrible idea. If I get closer to God, something's going to be taken away from me I hold dear. I'm going to end up giving away more of my money. I'm going to have to love someone I don't like again. It's a horrible idea trying to get closer to God. He messes everything up. <laughs> exactly. Well, there's a, there's a, which leads nicely to this question that's come in. I think it's very important for many people. It says, you two seem to have found a God of love. The God I was brought up with is essentially a judgmental bastard. How do I find your God? It's funny, isn't it, how often love and judgment feel like the same thing. I sometimes think that the encounter with those moments you see it in people or events or when you just blunder unexpectedly into the reality of God and the presence of Jesus Christ feels not, it's not nice. It feels like judgment because it calls from you your sense of your need of it. And you need it because you ain't there. You need it because you're far away, I think. And it is knowing that you're loved and it is knowing it is knowing that you're loved, but that can feel like a judgment, I think. I've never felt 
the, I've never felt God is a wrathful tyrant whom I must placate. Mm. But I felt love fall on me like a judgment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It stings. Yeah. Because love stings because it can remind us of all the ways that we have loved poorly or we have not been loved well. So to be loved uh, stings sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I was raised definitely with that idea that God is an angry, judgmental bastard with a killer surveillance system who's basically always disappointed in you. And, um, but whoever wrote that question, I just, I promise you, like, keep, keep searching because the God that you want is the God you have. And I don't think you could have asked that question in that way without actually being nearer to it than maybe you think. Mm-hmm. But what about this question here about loving your actual self? So if you, if you do a bit of self-scrutiny, like you both obviously have, and you don't like what you find, um, and you start to dislike that, I mean, the danger is that we start to hate our neighbor as ourself. <laughs> not love our neighbor as ourself. We project what we... So, question here, how do we allow God to love our actual selves when society teaches shame and rejection? Oh, shame. Yeah, so here's the thing about shame is um, I actually think it's demonic. I mean, I really do. Because um, it's this thing that um, eclipses the love of God and eclipses our true identity. But the thing about shame is that, I mean, I've been doing this thing about the Garden of Eden because it, in that story, we, we find that shame has an origin and it's not God. Because when they, when they listen to the serpent, they listen to somebody other than God tell them who they are and what they need. And, that, and then they did what they shouldn't have done. And then they hide their nakedness. They're ashamed. Shame enters in. They end up blaming each other. They end up uh, being afraid of God. They end up hiding. They end up being ashamed. That's what shame does. It makes us hide, afraid of God, blame other people, not admit the truth about ourselves. And I wonder, you know, when, when God goes, hey, where are you? And they go, well, we're ashamed of our nakedness and we hid and we were afraid. And God goes, who told you you were naked? Well, my money's on the snake, first of all. <laughs> but I've always wondered how would that story have been different if they, you know, I was talking about we can fearlessly tell the truth about ourselves. What if they just went, oh yeah, we messed up. We did this thing we shouldn't have done. Then God could have come and been the restorative, redemptive, forgiving, grace-filled, merciful God that God desires to be for us. That's being in right relationship with God. Being in right relationship is going like, I'm the creature, you're the creator. Like, I'm in need of your forgiveness and mercy and grace, and then you can let it come in. And instead, what shame does is we don't want to admit the thing. We are afraid of God, we blame other people, we hide. We're ashamed of our bodies. So how would that story have been different if they just were in right relationship with God, meaning just saying, hey, we, we sinned and, fall, and fell short, and then the mercy of God comes in and, and does what it does. Mm-hmm. I think also shame, we can, we can sort of love our own shame because it gives us a sense of self-importance. Sometimes. So guilt is 
I've done something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. Is that, right. yeah, is that what we're like talking about? Yeah. And I think often you find this in ordained ministry is people will tell you things of enormous import to them, things that have poisoned their lives, cast shadows over themselves and other people. And very often when they get to the punchline, it's not that much. It's actually. dead boring, actually. It's dead boring, it? yeah. and you've had eight that eight since Monday. And you're like nothing personal, but I'm like unimpressed with your sin. But, but, yeah, well, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, go out and try harder, right? Yeah. Like, come on. Yeah, but it's something that they have sort of treasured within themselves yes. because it gives because it can give you a kind of sense of self-importance or something. Yeah. And that's yeah. So that's perhaps something to feel more. I was well, I got I got the question at Greenbelt. Someone said. <clears throat> if Jesus came back, like, what do you think Jesus would think of the church today? <clears throat> and I said, I think he'd be curious why we don't talk about forgiveness of sins nearly as much as he did. He talked about forgiveness of sins all the time. It got him in trouble. He, was, he talked about it like he was a teenage boy in a, in a garage band, right? Who talks about his band all the time. Like, Jesus talked about forgiveness of sins all the time. How much does the church talk about it? Mm-hmm. Can I tell a saint story? This reminds yeah. me of good. This I was a volunteer at the London Lighthouse when uh, HIV, uh, the epidemic, hit in the mid-80s. And there was a very early resident there who was in the terminal stages of a hideous complex of diseases. He was a young gay man in his 20s. And he had lived in a town. And he'd been diagnosed as HIV positive. He'd drunk a lot, he'd taken a lot of drugs, his life had turned very bad indeed. And he decided just to get drunk and go out on his motorbike, so he did. He got plastered, he got on his bike, and he had a crash. Uh, hugely irresponsible. And he lay there, bleeding in the road, conscious, in pain, suffering his bike in pieces around him. Someone called the cops, and he saw in his confusion kind of a light show of blue lights, and then this figure in a high-vis jacket kind of moving towards him. And it was a traffic cop who knelt beside him and said, who are you, what's your name, da, da, da. And he had the presence of mind to say to the policeman, there's something you need to know, I'm HIV positive. He was bleeding, he was infectious. Thinking, that's probably the worst thing, you know, what could make this situation worse? Well, the confession that I'm HIV positive on top of everything else. And the policeman put his arm around him and said, there's something you need to know. You are loved. Hmm. Where did that come from? Yeah. Totally unexpected. It made such a difference to that guy. Yeah. At the moment of his kind of worst abandonment, most hideous humiliation, somebody said, you are loved. Hmm. I, I was struck when Padraco Tumor was here not too long ago, and he talked about the uh, resurrection appearances um, and there the disciples are probably feeling a lot of shame about how they've let him down and so on. And it says, when you read, the, Padraig said, when you read this, in, in the English translation, it says that Jesus comes and goes, peace be with you, rather as if he's like a canon of St. Paul's Cathedral at a liturgy, you know, peace be with you. Actually, the translation is simply of shalom, which was like, hi. Hey. Yeah. Hello. And that sort of simple understanding that whoever they were, whatever they were feeling, whatever they'd done, he walked into their room and he went, hi. Unbothered. (laughs) 
I've never, I've never heard that gospel story again without thinking of that. But don't you just hope you get that traffic cop when you reverse into a car at Saints? I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know if um, Richard's had this experience, but um, taking people's private confession, doing confession and absolution, there's this beautiful part of the, of the private confession and absolution in the Lutheran church where the, the priest says, do you believe that the word of absolution and forgiveness I'm about to say to you comes from God? And then the person says yes, and you go. And I was I was taking this woman's confession, which was not boring. It was a good one. And um, <laughs> I keep a ledger. No, <laughs> but um, but uh, she was so tense when she started, you know. And then we went through the thing, and I proclaimed absolution, and she just relaxed, and we were kind of laughing afterwards. And she looks at me, and perhaps this happens to you too, but she goes, "I'm so glad you're my pastor, because." I just know you've done much worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> do, you get th- do you get that? It's like, I just feel like it's like a very sweet service we give our people. You know, yeah. we offer to them. Whatever yeah. you've done, I've, I've done, done it worse. worse. Yes. <laughs> now, uh, another, there are a couple of questions here, which, you know, we might come to a, a meeting like this and we hear you speak and we think, oh, yes, that's great. Um, but then we go to church on Sunday and we might not be hearing this or singing this or reading it in our services. And here's a, a question that sort of encapsulates a couple of others. Do we need a whole new load of songs and liturgy to help us be saints and sinners in the way that you've spoken about tonight? Um, I, I really hate modern hymns. So, I mean, that's just me. I, I don't enjoy them. We only sing old hymns, old early American hymns generally in my church, because I feel like they really do get at theologically what is at the center of our congregation in a way that, um, like the really modern one, I just did beer and hymns at, at Greenbelt, and um, they're just, some of those are really, really hideous, you know? I, I'm like, at what, the like, um, uh, whom shall I send? That one, like um, here I am. Here I am. Yeah, but when did we start singing as though we're God in the first person? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, that I struggle with thinking I'm God enough that I don't feel like I need the hymns of the church colluding in this with me. So um, most most sort of contemporary Christian songs I'm not that fond of because I feel like the old ones actually get at the heart of being a sinner and a saint more than the lofty, they're like high self-esteem hymns or something. Mm-hmm. They're, a, they're hymns to high self-esteem to where we can actually sing like we're God. Mm-hmm. Richard? I have such low expectations of church being enjoyable, I think. <laughs> 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 that, it's, that it's the occasional pleasant surprise that sustains me. <laughs> and... Uh, I've realized someone, we were talking about this the other day, and they were saying, you know, I'm now in my middle 50s, and, you know, what do I like? In my, you know, my, in my 20s, it was pop music. In my 30s, it was opera and various things. And in my, in, my 50, in my 40s, it was Wagner and Real Housewives of Atlanta. And uh, what was in my 50s? And I said, I've, I quite like boredom. I quite like the everyday humdrum. I quite like just to feel hear the throb of the fridge in the kitchen, (laughs) the postman going door to door, the kids making a noise at the back, the people talking during my sermon, (laughs) the gas bill. Something about there's a beauty about the minutiae 
about the everyday stuff, about the prose, I think, because I can't always live in poetry, much as I love poetry. Because I love poetry, I can't always live in it because it wouldn't be poetry. Yeah. And I've come to love the prose. And I think sometimes our expectations of church are unrealistic in the sense that it has to feel like we've suddenly got to heaven or had that foretaste of heaven. Often, I do something else. In my church, it was a while ago, we have a, a parishioner who can, who's, can sometimes come in states of severe mental distress and spoil everything. And she came a while ago, and we were trying to have a very sort of solemn and serious liturgy. And she, well, to put it in Anglican speak, she spent a penny in her Wellington during the Eucharist as a sort of paraliturgy, if I can put it that way. I don't think they've even done that at Westcote yet. But I didn't really mind because it sort of upset everybody. And people were upset and they were shouting and there was a thing at the back. And anyway, it ended up though with her in her distress at the communion rail, kneeling for communion next to the second most right-wing conservative MP in the country. Praise God. Yeah. That was my doing. Yeah. But that was good. Yeah, that's That was right. good. That's right. Can I, because lots of questions are coming in. Um, one question for Nadia. You spoke, and I, I picked this up too, you spoke of speaking from your scars and not your wounds. Could you describe the journey of healing a little and how your faith has been part of that, if it has? And, and there's another question here that may be connected. Uh, perhaps, Richard, you might think of this. What words of hope and encouragement can be offered to a grown son suffering with schizophrenia who feels abandoned by God and not at all a child of God? So healing and, and communicating this. I don't, I don't know that my healing has been any different than anyone else's, to tell you the truth. I, I mean, I have the advantage of being a, a longtime member of a 12-step community. I'm in recovery, and I'm still part of that fellowship. So for over 24 years, I've spent time in the basements of churches um, working out my stuff, you know, and through a process of, of, of attempt reaching towards rigorous honesty, uh, cleaning, cleaning up my side of the street, trying to rely on God, try to be of service. I mean, who I am and my healing was really forged more in the basement of churches than in the sanctuaries, to tell you the truth. Now, um, but, not, but, but also, uh, to me, just I, I'm a huge fan of the sacraments, as nerdy as that is. Like, I really, I, I really need the Eucharist. I, I will go to the most boring church in the world just to receive Eucharist, really. Um, it, it is, it is um, something that I find to be extraordinary and transformative in a way that I have a hard time articulating. Better theologians than me can do that. Um, I just know that what I experience is so real in that, and I need it. And so I feel like a combination of regularly receiving the Eucharist um, and being a, a, a member of a 12-step community and being in recovery has healed a lot for me. And in terms of pre preaching from my scars and not my wounds, the whole reason to do that, the whole reason to admit these things about myself is to create a space around me other people can step into to consider what that might be for them. It's like it's a form of leadership I called, screw it, I'll go first, you know? So I, I invite a response about other people. Like, I'll just admit it first, and then I invite a response. What if they have instead is, 
a reaction about me, I haven't done it right. If, if I'm so upset about the thing or it's still so tender and their reaction is, oh my gosh, I hope she's okay, uh, that, was, that was a wound, not a scar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Communicating to somebody they're a child of God, Richard. I often think, and I keep a stash of cards of the icon of the Anastasis, mm -hmm. which in my theological college in the church of the, of the community of the resurrection, there's a big one in a chapel and I spend a lot of time in front of it in that chapel and it shows the harrowing of hell, that episode oh. much more current in Orthodox theology than in our own, yes. although it's, when it's in between Christ's death on the cross and his rising at yes. Easter. He goes to hell and it depicts that. He's trampled down the gates of hell which lies smashed at his feet and there's this black abyss beneath it and he's reaching in and he's yanking out Adam and Eve and all those who were around before he was there to save them. And you see falling back into this black pit chains and padlocks and keys. Mm. And there's something almost kind of violent about it, the way Jesus yeah. kind of reaches into this black yes. pit and pulls you yes. out. Right. And I, you know, I believe that beyond the furthest horizon of unimaginable, unmentionable suffering, through the work of the cross, there lies, the dawn breaks and a new reality beyond that. And our sense of that, anticipated now, brings forth in us desire to live in that new reality, to live in that new world. And that happens in all sorts of surprising places. All sorts of, I remember somebody, and we had a, it was a parishioner who had, um, had severe schizophrenia, was being cared for in the community, which meant being neglected by the community, I'm afraid. And he came to church not long after I'd been ordained deacon. It was, it was July, it was hot. And he said that he was worried that his, he had a demon and and I would understand why he'd say that because he used to walk around town. When he remembered to take his medication, he would walk a bit more surely. But most of the time he didn't. He was neglected. He was uncared for. He, was, he had a very, very hard life. And he said, the demon is in my trainers. And I haven't taken my trainers off for six weeks. Would you help me? And I did. I took his trainers off. And you can imagine with someone who has been walking around for six weeks, it was not great. But I was very, very conscious of tending to the feet of the people who come to our door. Mm. If we're trying to mm. make space within ourselves for Christ to dwell. Mm. It was a really odd mixture of kind of nausea and piety at the same time. They're often so close. But, but what happened in that was what he gave me. I thought I was the donor. I wasn't. He was the donor. He brought that to me. I'm struck in that uh, icon that you mentioned, that as he's pulling them out, Adam and Eve, he's also reintroducing them. Yeah. Because they went down to hell blaming one another. Yes. Right, oh, no, it wasn't right. me. It was, you know, <laughs> yes, it was yes, a snake. Right. Uh, That's right. And actually, the blame has to go, and he has to yes. sort of reintroduce them. Uh, and, and also, he reaches down, he pulls them out of the grave to resurrection, and they didn't spend any of their time on earth trying to be like Jesus, right? <laughs> they had salvation, resurrection, and heaven yeah. is granted to them without them undertaking the project of becoming Christ-like, because this is God's nature. This is how God acts upon us all the time, and God is still reaching into the graves we dig ourselves and loving us back to life yeah. over and over. We had uh, Rowan Williams here not long ago, uh, um, and he said at one point, I've never forgotten this, he said, 
Uh, talking as if you want uh, God to like you more is really just trying to tell a, a fountain to be wet. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, here's a question. Um, and you write a lot about obscure saints, don't you? I do. If you were a saint, famous saint, which would you be and why? And the person's written, sorry, that sounds like a question from Blind Date. <laughs> If, if you were a famous saint, which would you be? I'm often, I love one of my favorite saints is Saint Gemma Galgani, oh. who is, as far as I know, the best attested levitator of the 20th century. Gemma Galgani was born in 1878 in Lucca, where her father was a pharmacist. But she was stricken with holiness very early on in her career. She used to write a confession on a piece of paper and leave it in front of a statue of the baby Jesus, and the archangel Gabriel would come and take it to her confessor, so she needn't leave the house. She received the full house of the stigmata before she was toddling, I think. Um, but her habit of levitation began when she would soar up to the ceiling where there was a crucifix. I'm saying this is happening in the 19... This is happening around 1900 now. It's a very late example of a levitator. Most of them have kind of faded by the 17th century. But up she soared to the roof, and she kissed the feet of Jesus. But the really interesting thing was her sister used to fight her about it and tell her to stop showing off. <laughs> and there's something about her ascent to kiss the feet of Jesus and then her sister going, oh, damn it, stop showing off and That's slapping her that I kind of quite like. <laughs> okay. Nadia. I'm going to pass. <laughs> yes, okay. Um, there's a, well, actually, time is getting on, I'm afraid, so we've just got time for a couple more. Um, there's a couple of questions here about, okay, we, we accept ourselves, but where do we go then? Uh, about uh, this waiting for perfection is there a danger of doing nothing. You just accept yourself and that's fine. Isn't there any sort of uh, inner work that you're supposed to be doing? Oh, I know. This is the really, really tricky thing about grace is uh, it's totally offensive. Yeah. <laughs> no, we don't, we don't really actually like the idea of grace. We, yeah. uh, we will rebel against it, and yeah. we, will, we all think on some level the law will save us, mm -hmm. and so we generally reject grace because um, if it's free, it can't possibly be worth anything. Uh-huh. Yeah. And grace being giving more than we owe, receiving more than we deserve. And we don't like that. Yeah, no, because um, it's just so much easier to have the ball in our court, okay. right? Yeah. I mean, who, it's very difficult to accept that God has already made a decision about us. We would much rather spend all of our time trying to earn what has already been given to us, to wrest from God's fingers what's already been handed to us. Because we, we love a good project, and so um, we'd rather have a program or a plan or a project to apply ourselves to than to live in the absolute freedom of the actual gospel because freedom is terrifying. So um, generally we will uh, reject it. So. And we keep on doing it. It's a work that needs to be constantly sustained. I love the notion of metanoia again from, from Orthodox theology that we turn every day towards the endless work of trying to dismantle our projections of our own self-regard onto the plan that God has for us, I think. And that's a daily discipline, isn't it? And amazingly, you know, do you find within yourselves extraordinary resources of disrupting God's wishes in that matter? Yeah. I mean, I think when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant, like, it is finished. 
<laughs> like Brexit means Brexit. Brexit means Brexit. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> she speaks from the depths. <laughs> as, as one who has authority. <laughs> okay, time ticks away, so I'll try and get a couple more in, and then uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to call the evening to an end. There seems growing ignorance of the brokenness behind the other or the foreign right now. Where do you see the signs of hope? Oh, that's a tough one, isn't it, really? You know, one of the features of our culture, and it's something that I think is true of our widest culture, and also our particular culture as church, uh, is a kind of lapsing, a cleaving to the centrifugal forces that, I mean, it's so much of it, when you look at the madness of our politics, you look at the kind of stuff that Donald Trump says in America, you look at the kind of things that are said in our own political discourse, you look at what's happening within the sort of dynamic range of our politics at the moment, or you look within the church, really, that kind of refusal, it seems to me, or, or rather the, perhaps the kind of helter-skelter speed of our centrifugal vanishing over horizons is such that we've just kind of lost an ability to cherish our bastards. And I think we need to recover it. I think it's long overdue for, in all the kind of difficulty of that and in all the sort of frustration of that. But then so much of our... So much of that is a kind of weird dance, isn't it, of two steps forward and three steps back and then maybe three forward and two back. But I think it kind of, there's a sort of impatience and an unwillingness to surrender ourselves to that, that dynamic of Christ reaching into hell and pulling us out, us warring factions. And not, you know, it's not trite, I think. As I'm, not just, I'm not saying that our divisions are not real, but beyond our divisions that dynamic offers us a rescue from them, I think. Yeah, I mean, if you really do believe in, in grace, the, the, the super tricky thing about that, it means that um, you get to receive it and the people you hate get to receive it, right? So, yeah. I mean, if, if, it, if it's true for me, it has to be true for them, which means, like, with, which I hate. I mean, I, that's why I say the gospel's, like, the worst good news I've ever heard in my life. Um, yeah. Because with my luck, it means that I will be seated at the heavenly banquet between Donald Trump and some racist cop. Mm -hmm. And they will look at me and they will say, they'll hand me bread and wine because I think in heaven I'll be able to safely drink again. And they'll say, welcome. Mm -hmm. And I hate that. And it breaks my heart. But that's what I actually need. That's actually salvation to me. Do you know what I hate? I'm right. Yeah, I know you're right. I agree. I'm right, right. right? Yeah. I'm right. <laughs> right. Mm. But but the and thing yet, is, where does that get acknowledged? It gets you that? nowhere because here's the thing about self righteousness. It, I mean, it feels good for a minute, but like only in the way that peeing your pants feels warm for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to try and imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? How often? Uh, in in other the kind of in the fights that we join, how often victory when it comes feels like a grave disappointment, oh, isn't it? in the sense that you've lost. I mean, it's a pyrrhic victory that you've lost something in that that was more desirable than the triumph you've achieved. But okay, final question. Okay. It's a question about the church, actually. So here we are, trying to follow the man of Nazareth, 
we're aware of our faults, perhaps only too well, and certainly aware of other people's. Thank you very much. How can this community, this church, celebrate the diversity of God's people better than it is at the moment with that reality? There's about four questions asking that. So what have we got to offer that you can't find in the rugby club, in the working men's club? What, what is it that's defining the hope that is Christian? Well, I, to me, um, the church has, a very, has some things that are reserved specifically for it because um, the culture itself does a lot of things well. The culture has charities, they have preschools, they have premarital counseling. I mean, there's a lot of things that our culture does well. What they will never do, what society will never do, is administer the sacraments, preach the gospel, and proclaim forgiveness of sins. That's our primary job. Nobody else is going to do that. So to me, that's the focus of what it means to be church, going about that and as long as that's happening, the church will still be around. I mean, the institutions will, will rise and fall. I was in Cappadocia two years ago with Sarah Miles. And, that, that, you know, it was Christian for a long time, Byzantine Christian. Hasn't been Christian for 800 years, and yet we're climbing into these caves that were just filled with Byzantine iconography in a land that hadn't been Christian for 800 years. And I wonder what that last generation of, of Christians were thinking. You know, you know, there aren't any young people going to the cave churches anymore. Yep. But the church didn't die. If it had, two middle-aged women could not be in those cave churches 800 years after Christianity had left, the week after Easter, singing Christos and Este together. Because God's name will be praised. I mean, God, God will raise from rocks voices to praise God's name. And people will continue to gather in the name of the triune God, lift up bread, talk about the night Jesus was betrayed, give it to their friends, say that it's Jesus' body, it's for forgiveness, it's for them. That will happen until we gather around the throne of the Lamb as it has always happened. So I'm, I'm unbothered by what's going on in the church in terms of the institution not doing well or not having a good reputation because I think that is what church is and it will continue. I think we walk into the graveyard carrying our grave clothes and we find something unimaginable in there and we run out in confusion and everything's different and we have imaginative things to do with papier-mâché. <laughs> <laughs> so a final thought, um, Nadia is going to read a benediction which you uh, have asked to read. Yeah. So receive this as a blessing. Maybe the Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus' lavish blessing of the people around him on that hillside, blessing all the accidental saints in this world, in that world, that didn't have much time for, like people in pain, people who work for peace instead of profit, people who exercise mercy instead of vengeance. Maybe Jesus was simply blessing the ones around him that day who didn't otherwise receive blessing, who had come to believe that for them blessings would never be in the cards. I mean, come on, doesn't that just sound like something Jesus would do, extravagantly throwing around blessings like they grew on trees? So I imagine Jesus standing among us offering new beatitudes like this. 
Blessed are the agnostics. Blessed are they who doubt, those who aren't sure, who can still be surprised. Blessed are they who are spiritually impoverished and therefore not so certain about everything they no longer take in new information. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer. Blessed are preschoolers who cut in line at communion. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are they for whom death is not an abstraction. Blessed are they who have buried their loved ones for whom tears could fill an ocean. Blessed are they who have loved enough to know what loss feels like. Blessed are the mothers of the miscarried. Blessed are they who don't have the luxury of taking things for granted anymore. Blessed are they who can't fall apart because they have to keep it together for everyone else. Blessed are those who still aren't over it yet. Blessed are those who mourn. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are those who no one else notices. The kids who sit alone at middle school lunch tables the laundry guys at the hospital, the sex workers and the night shift street sweepers. Blessed are the forgotten. Blessed are the closeted. Blessed are the unemployed, the unimpressive, the underrepresented. Blessed are the teenagers who have to figure out ways to hide the new cuts on their arms. Blessed are the meek. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are the wrongly accused, the ones who never catch a break, the ones for whom life is hard, for Jesus chose to surround himself with people like them. Blessed are those without documentation. Blessed are the ones without lobbyists. Blessed are foster kids and trophy kids and special ed kids and every other kid who just wants to feel safe and loved. Blessed are those who make terrible business decisions for the sake of people. Blessed are the burned out social workers, the overworked teachers, the pro bono case takers. Blessed are the kind hearted football players and the fundraising trophy wives. Blessed are kids who step between the bullies and the weak. Blessed are they who hear they're forgiven. Blessed are the merciful for they totally get it. I imagine Jesus standing there blessing us all because I believe that is our Lord's nature. Because after all, it was Jesus who had all the powers of the universe at his disposal but did not consider his equality with God something to be exploited and instead, he came to us in the most vulnerable of ways as a powerless flesh and blood newborn. As if to say, you may hate your bodies but I'm blessing all human flesh. You may admire strength and might, but I'm blessing all human weakness. You may seek power, but I'm blessing all human vulnerability. This Jesus whom we follow cried at the tomb of his friend and turned the other cheek and forgave those who hung him on a cross because he was God's beatitude. He was God's blessing to the weak in a world that admires only the strong. God bless you. Amen. Amen. Uh, listening to our two speakers this evening, I was thinking of the Habsburg funeral rite 
where the coffin was brought in great procession to the small capuchin chapel. And as the coffin got to the door, they closed the door, and the equerry of the deceased Habsburg knocked on the door, and a little voice came from the church, who is it? And the equerry would read out all the titles of the deceased, the Grand Duke of this, the Archduke of that, took a few minutes, and a little voice would come back, we know him not. Another bang, who is it? And this time, just the, the main titles, three or four, we know him not. Final bang on the door, who is it? A sinner in need of God's mercy. And the voice came back, him we know, enter. Yeah, amen. And uh, hearing you both tonight, I've just come to understand what a beautiful thing it is to be able to say that about yourself. And on behalf of everybody gathered here, thank you both so much for this evening. Yeah. Thank you.